Psalm 36. Hear the word of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. This morning, we read a psalm that is very striking, I found this week. Very hard, yet so inviting. Very dark, yet brilliant with the beauty of God. All frightening, yet all awesome. This is a striking psalm with a contrast that we just can't get over. And I think what it's doing is what it's, it's calling us to do is to consider two lies that we face every day. And that's why it hits so hard. It, it calls us to confront these two lies that are told all the time, that are believed by so many and may, believed by all of humanity. Two lies that steal your joy that harm your neighbor and that lead to your destruction. These two lies are that sin is not that bad and that God is not that good. Those are the two lies that the world, that even we ourselves believe and say too often. All around us, we are told that sin is not that bad. It doesn't hurt anyone. Right and wrong can't be defined. And we live in a world of relativity. Good and bad aren't really that easy to determine between. They might not even exist, but if they do, it, surely it's not that bad. At the same time, we're told that God, at least the God of the Bible, that is, God is not that good. He isn't worth not doing this for. If God's good, He would love me the way I am. He would give to me the things that I want. These can't be that good. These are the lies that we are told and that we believe sometimes. 
These are two lies lead to a great confusion in our hearts and in our minds. And they lead to believe that sin's not bad and God's not good. But, but Psalm 36 gives us clarity. It's like the sun on a foggy morning, right? When there's a fog advisory, you can see maybe 20 feet in front of your car when you're driving, which is terrifying, to be honest. But you're, you're driving, you can barely see, and it's foggy, you can't see anything. And then the sun comes out. And it burns away the fog. And you can see, and it brings light to the day. That's Psalm 36 for these two lies that we face every day. That's what it does. It gives us clarity. And it shows, it exposes the depth of man's sin and the height of God's love. The depth of man's sin and the height of God's love. And what it shows us in this is that man's sin is no match for God's love. The darkness of sin cannot, never will, never has, and never will overcome the brilliance and the radiance of God's steadfast love. And because of that, because of his matchless love, we have hope and refuge from the sin around us and the sin within us. That's our takeaway this morning. God's steadfast love gives us hope and refuge from the sin around us and the sin within us. To see that, we're going to break this psalm into three parts. You can probably guess the first two points. The depth of man's sin, verses 1 to 4, and the height of God's love, verses 5 to 9. And then we're going to finish with the prayer of God's people in verses 10 to 12. Depth of man's sin, height of God's love, prayer of God's people. And a little caveat, the first two will be very long. So when we're like an hour and a half into it, and we're still not to the third point, don't freak out. We'll be done by three. I promise. We'll be done. Pastor Dan's not here, so we can go, we can go long. No, but we will. We will spend some more time in the first two points. But let's look. Let's jump in, and let's look into this sobering reality of the first four verses of the depth of man's Sin And really, what I want to is I want to look just at verse 1 first. And we're going to see the heart of the matter when we think about sin. Verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. How transgression speaks into his heart. That means his core, who he is, what he loves, are all spoken to. They're all led by transgression. Now, transgression is kind of a, a church word. We use it a lot. So let's define it. The idea of transgression is a, a willful breaking of the rules. It's not an accident. It's not something, oh, I didn't know that. It's, I knew it, and I did it anyway. That's a transgression. It's a decided, willed act of rebellion. It's being told, here's the line, that, that, that's the line? Okay. I'm going to do it my way. It's being Frank Sinatra. Great song. Terrible concept. Don't do it my way. That's a transgression. Going against what God says with a decided, willful act of rebellion. That's what speaks deep into the heart of the wicked. Not only that, it says that there is no fear of God before his eyes. Fear of God, the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 9, Job 28, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
We're familiar with that. What's that mean, though? Again, let's define these terms. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What's that look like? Tim Keller, I think, has said it best. He says, fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. That is completely absent from the heart of the wicked. From the heart of what sin is and what sin does. There's no wonder of who God is. There's no awe. There's no amazement at what he has done. There's no dread of his wrath. The word literally is dread and trembling. There's no dread of the wrath of God. It is simply, as one pastor has said, it's a shrugging of the shoulders at God. I think it's interesting. We think of wickedness and we think of sin as like the farthest reaches it can go, the farthest sin can take us, the most wicked of the wicked, the Adolf Hitlers. But this is saying it's just a shrugging of the shoulders. Oh, there's God? That's cool. I'm going to do my way. That is the heart of wickedness, according to Psalm 36. Now we have to ask the question, that's the heart of it. That's a very dark picture. How did we get there? How, how's this wicked man, this person, how's he, how's he get here? What's the road to this point? Well, look back at the text with me. Let's start back in verse 2, and we'll read through verse 4. For, because he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. What we see about this road, this path of sin to the wicked, is that it's a path of progression. It's a progression of an infection is what it is. It begins with his thoughts. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out. Rather than worshiping the Lord, he's worshiping himself. He's literally, the text, smoothing. He's smoothing out the lies and the pain and the sin that he is doing and facing and that's all around him. It's okay. He's comforting his conscience. He's smoothing it out. It's self-deception that ultimately leads to self-elevation. It's his sins not being punished. It's not known. So it's not bad. Maybe it's okay. I'll keep doing it. That's the first step. The next step, the infection spreads. And now it's in his words. His vernacular is that of wickedness. It's of deceit and trouble. He's spreading his own thoughts as good. It transitions from deceiving himself with his thoughts to deceiving others with his words. And now it keeps going. Now from his words, they are actions. He ceases to act wisely and do good, which is an interesting thing. Wisdom equals to doing good. Acting wisely is doing good. Oh, let us act wisely. Back to the wicked man, though. Wickedness ceases to do good. 
to act wisely. It becomes not just what's thought or what's taught, but what's lived. And then finally, the infection finds its home. It's not simply something that's thought. It's not just done. Now it's plotted. It's premeditated. It's maybe even loved as he does not reject evil anymore. He plots how he can do it. He lays on his bed all hours of the day. It doesn't matter where the sun's at on the horizon. He's thinking about how he's going to do this. Which compare that to David. Psalm 63. What's David think about on his bed? He says, I remember you, O Lord, upon my bed, and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. That's, that's the man of God. The man in his sin is so enthralled in it that he's meditating it, on it all the days, all the hours of the day. The infection has spread from his thoughts to his words to his hands and now down deep into his heart. That's what sin does. That is a bleak picture. We just need to stop and take a breath because that's a lot. That's dark, but it's honest. Remember the lie. Sin's not that bad. Read Psalm 36. Sin is an infectious disease that kills your heart. And it goes all the way down. It's dark. And from this picture, from this honest truth, this reorientation of that lie, the truth, let's draw three applications. The first application is the danger. There's three. Danger, culprit, problem. The first one, the danger. If this passage teaches us anything about sin, it is that sin has an infectious nature about it. It does not stop. It is not content with small spoils. It goes for the whole. So sin is not something to take lightly or to make light of. It's not to be of jokes. It's not to be made it's just something we do, something that's around. It is harmful. We must not make light of sin. We live in a time that that is the regular. That is the norm. We must be clear about what is right and what is wrong. And we must stand for what is right and clearly draw that line between right and and wrong. We cannot trivialize the impact of sin in our lives or the impact of sin around us. Alexander Pope, who was a poet from the 18th century, wrote a poem to the king asking him to change his mind. And in that poem, he, he describes sin. He labels it vice. But he describes sin this way. He says, vice is a monster of so frightful mean. As to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet, Seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then we pity, then we embrace. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, don't make light of sin. We see it as evil, but the more we look at it, the more we peddle in it, the more we soften its sharp edge, the less we push it away, we start to endure it, then we start to sympathize with it in our lives, and then we start to embrace her as our own. It is infectious, friends. Sin is infectious. Do not trivialize it. Second, the culprit. Christian, this text does not exclude us. 
We can read Psalm 36, 1 through 4, and have the picture of somebody else in our mind. But this text does not exclude us. In some of the early manuscripts, we read verse 1 saying, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart. Possibly, David wrote, not his heart, my heart. Possibly what he's seeing as a potential in his own life. If you compare it to 1 Kings, 2 Kings, sorry, 2 Kings, you can see some parallels between him, this psalm, and David's sin against Bathsheba. Whether or not that's what David meant, Paul clearly took this psalm that way. Romans 3 is this movement from 1 and 2 of the, the sin of the Greeks, the sin of the Gentiles, us, welcome, and the sin of the Jews. And then 3 is just this culmination of And so it's everyone. And what he does, he goes through 14 citations, six different Old Testament references, and the very last one, the pinnacle to describe the sinfulness of all humankind is Psalm 36, verse 1. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So friends, this is applied by Paul, by the New Testament, and possibly by David to all of us. So remember, it's easy to have the face of someone else in mind when we read these verses, but we need to consider a mirror, not just a picture of someone else. Okay, these verses show us that there is sin all around us and that there is sin within us that is all equally ugly. All equally ugly. So before we point fingers at the problem, we're going to get to there, we also need to remember and be reminded of our own heart's proneness to wonder from the God that we love. Second application. Third application is the problem. The problem. What we see in these four verses is that the greatest problem in the world is not inequality, injustice, social systems, politicians, policies, election outcomes, laws, or whatever else we want to point our finger at and say, that's the problem. Those stem, those are evidences of problems. But the greatest problem is the sin in man's heart. The reason the powerful take advantage of the vulnerable is because of the sin in his heart. The reason the innocent are murdered, the unarmed are murdered, is because of the sin, primarily the sin in man's heart. We, again, remembering the poison of sin should see wrong, call out wrong, fight against wrong, but we must remember and we must keep our focus on what truly is the problem, and that is the sin in man's heart. Mankind is enslaved to sin. We believe the lie that it's not that bad and that God's not that good. And so we were given up to the lusts and the dishonorable passions of our hearts. Mankind was made a slave to the sin he loved. And so the only solution, the only answer, the true problem is to be set free, to be loosed from the bondage of that sin. But freedom from slavery is not found in a change of circumstances, policies, politicians, and laws. Freedom from slavery of sin comes when the truth is exposed about the two lies we believe. And we're on our way to get there. We've had one lie exposed. Sin is bad. It is gruesome. But the other lie, 
Oh, God is good. And that's where David goes next. So let's go there. Let's, let's remedy this whole problem. Let's free the sinner from the slavery of sin by looking not just at what sin is, but also who God is. Look back at verses 5 to 9 with me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In verses 1 through 4, we saw the wickedness. We saw the depth of man's sin. But now, now we see the height of God's love. The first lie has been corrected, friends. Sin is bad. But oh, let's just sit here and enjoy. God is good. God is so good. And to show us this, to show us this, what David does is he, he reorients the lie. God's not that bad by saying God is good, and he does it in two ways, two ways. First, in showing us who God is, he corrects who God is, and then he corrects what God gives. Who God is, what God gives. So first, let's look at who God is. In verse 5 and 6, David marvels at, he extols the beauty of just who God is. He gives us five attributes of God. First, the first attribute is God's steadfast love. This is arguably the most important attribute to David in this psalm because he repeats it three times. It almost frames the way he's thinking throughout the rest of this psalm. And steadfast love of God is just a concept of, we, we don't have an English word to, to portray what this Hebrew word means. You might have heard it. It's the word hesed. There's no English parallel. There's really no other language parallel to what this word means. It's the, sometimes you'll see as loving kindness or unfailing love. Those ideas are trying to capture the meaning of hesed. The idea, though, is that of a covenantal love. A covenantal love. That's a, a deep cherishing of the other that never fails and it never wavers. There's no flickering. My light, in my house right now, if we have one light on and we flip a, uh, like the attic fan comes on, the light kind of starts to flicker a little bit because there's too much draw, but there's never too much draw on the love of God. It never flickers. It's, it's supposed to be shown in marriage where you see, imagine a husband who he cherishes, he honors, he comforts, he loves, he cares for, he protects, he sacrifices for, he remains loyal to, he listens to his wife. That is a picture of God's covenantal love. It's a binding love to the other. And that's the love that God has for his people. And it's who he is. And to what extent does it go? To the heavens. The heavens. David, David doesn't know what skyscrapers are. So what's the tallest thing? That. 
up there. I don't know. It just doesn't stop. There's no cap. There's no end. There's no running out of his steadfast love. He says, I love you. He says, I love you. When the world doesn't say I love you, when your spouse doesn't say I love you, when you don't say I love me, he says, I love you, my child. That's who he is. That's his steadfast love. Not only that, he is steadfast love, but he's also faithfulness. His faithfulness extends to the clouds. This means that, just to sum it up, he's a promise-keeping God. What he says is true, and he will keep. His word is true, and his promises are sure, and they will come to fruition. It means that when he says your scarlet sins will be as white as snow, they will be. They are. It means when he says that you are my child, born of the Spirit by faith in Christ, you are. It means whenever he says, I will surely bring to completion the good work in which I've started in you, he will. And it means when he says, I am with you, friend, he's right beside you until the end of the age. He is a faithful God. It's who he is. He never breaks his promises. Also, his righteousness is an unmoving mountain. It never changes, it never wavers, it never moves, it never shakes. And his judgments, they're not, they're not short-sighted, they're not shallow, but they're deep. He perceives all the way down. He knows the truth, the deepest you can know. The deepest you can imagine is the depth of his judgment and foresight. He knows and he judges right and true and good. And finally, the fifth attribute, sorry I wasn't numbering them all, they're, they're in there. The fifth attribute, he's the preserver of all life. A man and beast, O oh God, you save. David is saying that all that we see, all that lives, is by the merciful provision and sustenance God gives. He's not a God of death. He's a God of life. Who he is is life. That's who God is, friends. Love, faithfulness, righteousness, judgment, and life this is the beauty of his character. And I just want to, first of all, like our hearts should be soaring. That's the God who calls you his child. First of all. Second of all, this helps us see a really important application, I think, as well. Where does, God, where does David start when he wants to combat sin and evil? What's the first thing he thinks about? Is it what God gives? No. It's who God is. It's who God is. That's an important application, I think. Just kind of a side, not a major point, but it's there. David's showing us that the ultimate good, the ultimate goal, the first priority of the Christian life is not, not what God gives. Those are tremendous. We're going to get there. It's not what God gives, though. It's God. It's who he is. And you being his and knowing him and being in the relationship you were supposed to be in with him, it's, it's him it's him calling you his. And so it's just a question I think we should ask ourselves regularly, friends. What is my first prize? What is my goal? What is my greatest joy? Is it who God is? Or is it what God gives? And if it's the other way, we need to reorient that. We need to reorient that. But what he gives is so great too. It's so great that David goes there next. So look back, verses 7 to 9. We're not going to read them again, but just kind of keep them, keep them in front of you as I go. 
In verses 7 to 9, we see and celebrate what God gives. Similar to the attributes, there's five. It's almost like David thought this out. He gives us five and five. Um, But there's five blessings to note. First, refuge. David finds refuge in God amid the darkness of sin all around him. The image he's drawing from is that of a mother hen with her chicks, right? Like a mother hen will either sit down or she'll kind of scoot over by her chicks and she'll put her wing around them and bring them real close, protect them with the warmth, the comfort of the touch of being under her arm. That's the image that David wants us to see and picture when we think of the refuge that God gives us. It's deeply personal. It's this incomprehensible God of who he is, and then what he gives is so personal. It's not tools to go, hey, make refuge for yourself. Or, hey, you know, I've done this for you. You're good. Like, go on your way. It's, no, come here. Come here. Be under the shadow of my wing. Know me. Feel me. Touch me. It's, it's personal. Next, he doesn't just give refuge. He gives satisfaction and joy. It's two in one. Two for Satisfaction and joy. One of the lies that sin tells us, when it tells us that sin's not that bad and God's not that good, it's also saying, and sin gives you more and God gives you less. But Psalm 36 is like, that is folly. (laughs) That is so far from the truth. No, God, God doesn't just give you. He gives you the abundance of his house. Think about this. this. The lie that we believe is that God doesn't give us enough. It's the lie that Eve believed in the garden. It's the lie that Israel believed in the wilderness. It's the lie that we believe every day when we choose sin over obedience. It is the lie that God doesn't give us enough. But what Psalm 36 shows us is that he gives satisfaction in abundance. In abundance. We don't eat. We feast. And we don't just feast on what he has. We feast on the abundance of his house. He's like, open the storehouses. My kids are here. Come on, let's eat, friends. It's so good. It's so full. It's so satisfying. That's what he gives. And he's, are you thirsty? Are you, oh, my river of Eden. Here you go. My river of delights, the same word for Eden. He's like, are you thirsty? Oh, still, you want more? More delight, more joy? Drink up, child. That's what he gives satisfaction and joy that never ends, that is never touched by anything else in comparison. It is the satisfaction that's deep in us and the joy that just blows out from our hearts. That's what he gives. Fourth, he is the fountain of life. Who he is, we kind of said this a second ago, but who he is, is life. He gives life, He sustains life. He celebrates life. He is the fountain of life. There's no darkness in him. There's no death in him that is absent from God. Instead, with him, oh, it's just life. Fountain of life. Fifth, we see light. He is the light in which we see light. This means that he exposes. It means he does a few things. He exposes the danger around us. He comforts those surrounded by darkness. He shows what is true. And he exposes what is false. Comfort, exposing danger, exposing falsehood, exposing truth. He is a light that shines light for us. So David's describing this. 
right? David's describing how, who God is and what he gives, and you, you can hear his joy in 5 through 9. And he sees his own sin. He knows he needs a refuge, so where does he go? Straight to God in his steadfast love. He sees the sin around him, and he needs hope that this is not the going to win the day. And where does he go? Straight to the God who gives him a feast of the abundance and lets him drink from the river of his delights. But friends, what David's looking at is a glimpse. It's a small taste of what we get to experience by being united to Christ through faith. But what Christ has accomplished and gives to us. Those who are united to Christ through faith experience this even more richly and deeply. This is because in Jesus, we see in, ex- in him, we see and experience the steadfast love of God. He is the love of God. He came when we did not seek him. He lived and died and rose from the grave, overcoming the sin that we cling to, and we walk blindly in. We flattered ourselves. We spoke of our own evil. We ceased to act wisely. We plotted to do evil. And he came for us. He came for us. And what he did is he came for us and he became for us our good shepherd, giving us rest and refuge. He became for us our bread of life, giving us satisfaction and sustenance and joy. He became for us the life giver who gives life, not just life, but life abundantly to the full. And he became for us the light and life, for in him is life, which is the light of man. He became for us all of these promises so that by faith, through repentance and coming to Christ, being united in him, we get to enjoy and celebrate these things. And that's still just a taste. All of this, all of this is drawn from the prophets, even Christ himself, to say, yeah, what you get now, what you get now, that's still not it. This is what it's really going to. Because one day, one day, with Christ, in Christ, we will have refuge in the city where there will be no darkness because of his radiating glory. We will feast in his house of abundance with satisfaction, drinking from the river of delights that flows from his throne. There will be no more tears and no more sorrow, no more death, because death is dead, and life will be all that we know because we're in the presence of God who is the fountain of life. And we will see the beautiful face of our Savior. We'll see him face to face, and we'll hear his voice. You're mine. You are my child. That's what we get. That's the joy and satisfaction. That's our refuge And that's our hope in the steadfast love of God. This is who Christ is. This is what Christ has accomplished. And this is what Christ has promised. Friends, do you see the unbelievable nature of his love? Do you you see his amazing grace? Those who bite their thumb at him. I love that Shakespearean phrase. Those who bite their thumb at him. Him being the all-powerful, the all-knowing, and the perfect. They bite their thumb at him, are welcomed into his home by him through his sacrifice of his son. That's amazing grace. That is his love. That is his steadfast love that never breaks and never wavers. 
Friend, do you know this love? Do you truly know this love? Have you tasted of this delight? Have you seen the beauty of the God who shows your sin for what it is, but still invites you to him for who he is? Do you know this love? Look to Jesus if you do not. Trust that his life is the only life acceptable because your sin truly is as evil and wicked as it is, but his righteousness is truly as glorious and perfect as it is. Look to his life. Look to his death to pay for the depth of your sin, showing the height of his love. Trust in him for your life alone. Don't trust in anything else. Trust in him, his love, his grace, that he can save a wretch like you and me. Trust in Christ, friend, and have the joy and the abundance of knowing and being with the God who is love. That is the depth of man's sin and the height of God's love. That's the reorientation that we need. Because remember, we are enslaved to sin in our natural state. The only way to get around that and to change that is to have those lies combated and exposed. Man's sin is deep and ugly, and God's love is high and glorious. And so how should we respond? That's how David closes. He closes with a response. And that response is prayer. He closes with a prayer, a request to God, a petition for perseverance and a petition for preservation. Perseverance and preservation. Look back at verses 10 through 12 with me. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down and unable to rise. David's prayer is that the steadfast love he just celebrated, that we see when we see who God truly is, and we experience and taste his blessings, his prayer is that his steadfast love would continue. Just, just keep it going. Never take it away from me, God. If you are too good and what you give is too great, never take it away from me. Always keep my sin before me and the height of your love even more beautiful to me. He prays that the people of God would persevere in their celebration of God's love, delight in being God's people, and rest in God's refuge. And in verse 11, he prays for perseverance, pers- preservation, sorry, excuse me, preservation, for protection. He prays for protection because the danger of the wicked. There's two dangers I think we need to keep in front of us as we close out this and think of praying for this. The first danger is that those who do not fear the Lord will hate those who do fear the Lord. The Bible attests to that. It's all over. He says it right here, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. Some translations say crush me. There is a reality that those who do not fear the Lord do hate those who do fear the Lord. So we pray for preservation. At the same time, his bigger preservation, I think, is the second line. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. He's saying, God, 
preserve me, first of all, from like the shepherds coming in and driving away the flock from the fountain, like the water. Think of like Moses, when Moses goes and rescues the flock, the shepherds were driving them away and he fought them off so the the daughters could have water for their, their sheep. Same image there, right? He's saying, don't let them drive me away and take me away from you. But also, don't let their apparent success flatter me, entice me, make me envious of it. Call my heart away from what you, who you are and what you have given to me. He's saying continue your steadfast love to protect us from the sin around us and from the sin that entices us. There's a reality that we face there. The response to Psalm 36 is seeing the depth of man's sin and the height of God's love. The response is prayer and prayer that he would continue his steadfast love Pray that he would continue his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice, his preservation. Continue to be our refuge. Continue to be our joy and satisfaction, our life and our light. And to always remember the end of the wicked so that we may never be enticed by it. The end. There they are. They lie fallen. They cannot get up. There's an already reality to the end for the wicked. The end for sin and life in sin is sure and unchanging. David can look at it and say as if it is today. There is an end that the sin in our life faces. So may we never be enticed. And if we are there, may we see the glories of who God is and the, the mire in which we stand right now. That is the prayer that David ends with. And so friends, let us learn from this psalm. Let us rightly see that sin is wicked. Don't believe the lie. Sin is not bad. No, friends, you're right. It's wicked. It's so much worse than bad. And let us not believe the lie that God is not good. In one sense, again, you're right. God's not good. He's unimaginably good. Like, you can't even put enough adjectives in front of good to describe the goodness of God. He is good in the fullest sense of the word. Let us not trivialize our sin, but let us put to death our sin, as Paul says in Colossians. Let us bring it to light, as John says in 1 John. And let us rejoice in who God is, celebrating his steadfast love, seeing the grace he has shown upon us who were once in our wicked sin, but are now called children of God by his love, now having a hope and refuge forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we are in awe of just seeing who you are. We are sobered by seeing the reality of the sin in which we once lived, in which our hearts can still be drawn to. Father, we pray that you would help us to expose that in our own hearts, and our own lives put to death our desires for that and raise our affections for you and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to run to him, to see the beauty of who you are in the face of our Savior, the radiance of your glory. Father, help us to run to our steadfast love, Jesus, our faithfulness, our righteousness, the judgment in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to combat these lies in our hearts, Help us to see the reality of them around us and combat that around us as well.
And we pray that we would just rest in knowing that we have refuge and hope in your steadfast love. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.